from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Like, we will not be in a successful place if we have 500 different ways to do a high-quality offset and 50 different ways to measure and account for it. That will not be a success. Success would be like thousands of ways to do an offset and two to five maybe ways to actually measure, verify, and account for it. I love talking about carbon markets. That's all, that's the teaser. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. It is so great to be back. First of all, thanks to Lara Pierpoint for filling in for me while I was out. Lara is, as you all now know, a rock star and was the only person who I wanted to fill my shoes for a few weeks. So now you all know why. Uh, so thank you to Lara. We'll have her back on periodically, I think, because there is a lot to talk about with her. Okay, so my quick update to start. I now have a four-week-old son named Atticus. His middle name, alas, is not net zero, though nicknames are very much still on the table. And while I won't get into all the common tropes about parenthood and how it changes your whole perspective, I will say this. In the year 2050, by which time we need to have achieved global net zero greenhouse gas emissions across all sectors, Atticus will turn 28. And anything that's going to have a gigaton scale impact by the time he's 28 needs probably to be proven commercial and scaling by the time, I don't know, he gets acne and has his first awkward middle school dance. Not so much time, really. Okay, onto the show. So let's start with four numbers. One trillion, 851 billion, one billion, 50 million. These numbers are one trillion dollars, That's the higher end of the size of the carbon removal market that is required by 2050, according to the IPCC, if you assume about 10 gigatons of carbon removal required at about $100 a ton. So it could be a trillion dollar market. 851 billion, that is indeed the size of the global carbon market today. The buying and selling of CO2 credits uh, are actually in 2021, according to Refinitiv. So pretty close. Ah, but 1 billion out of that 851 billion, that's the entire size of the voluntary carbon market, the market outside what's regulated into existence, largely by the European Union. Still a billion, not bad. But then there's this final number, 50 million. That's my honestly high-end estimate of the total voluntary carbon removal purchases last year. So within an order of magnitude or so, that voluntary carbon removal market needs to scale up something like 20,000 times by 2050 in order to reach those IPCC goals, or it needs to no longer be voluntary. But meanwhile, carbon markets, be they carbon avoidance, carbon removal, be they voluntary or compliance, are hot. Tons of new companies are seeking to develop new kinds of credits, broker them, verify them, put them on the blockchain, and more. Prices in the main compliance markets have shot up and come a little bit back down, but still remain above historical norms. And bilateral contracts in voluntary markets are popping up right and left. I actually have a long history in this world. One of my first jobs out of college long ago was originating and trading credits in the voluntary carbon markets of yore. This was in like 2007, at which point there was actually a ton of excitement, not dissimilar from today's, around the coming boom in, at that time, carbon offsets. It ended up being more like a mini boomlet followed by a big crash and did not recover until pretty recently. And there are a bunch of reasons this time might be different. Better transparency, a focus on removals over offsets, more demand, and so on. 
But I think anyone involved in the voluntary carbon market today will tell you it's still very early days and there is much to be solved. And in the meantime, there is a very large liquid market for carbon that has been regulated into existence and should not be forgotten in the conversations around CO2 credits. So let's see if we could sort this all out. For this one, I brought on Nat Bullard. Many of you know Nat, but Nat is the chief content officer at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and he writes a killer weekly column for Bloomberg that I really love, uh, one recent edition of which was on this very topic. Let's go. Nat, welcome to Catalyst. Shale, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here, and uh, congratulations on the little one. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If I start slurring my words in the middle of this conversation, then you have to pick up the slack for me. I know you you can appreciate that as a father yourself. Every parent listening along will be like, he's a, he's a new dad. We get it. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, glad you're here to take it easy on me. Uh, and very excited to talk carbon markets with you. There's, I think, to start, there's a lot of terms that we may throw around that relate to carbon markets that people use for different purposes, carbon markets, offsets, credits, indulgences, I don't know, a bunch of other stuff. I think what we're trying to do here is, at least from my perspective, there's been so much interest and attention in carbon markets in different shades of late. There's like renewed interest in it that I haven't seen since, you know, I was working in carbon markets like like 12 years ago. I know you were involved too at that time. So it's a, it's a new thing that it's it's back in the limelight. I think we want to try to clarify as much as we can to start what are these markets today? What do they look like? What are the contours of them? What exists within them? And then maybe talk a little bit about what might be coming next. So let's start with the high level. Um, can you sort of distinguish between compliance and voluntary carbon markets and where do they exist today? I think this is actually a really important place to begin. If, if you were to listen to the discourse that sort of uh, centers around where you are, that originates, generally speaking, from the Bay Area. You would think that carbon markets are are like wildly undefined, tiny, uncertain, uh, with a not huge trustworthy. degree of not trustworthy, with a huge degree of technological innovation in them. The reality is that there is a carbon market that almost nobody in the United States has anything to do with, but that is on the order of about $760 billion a year last year, and that is the EU ETS. Um, globally, carbon markets are about $850 billion in 2021. Uh, and of that, almost the entirety of it runs through compliance. It runs through markets that have been set up for quite some time that work very well and that respond to, in my mind, and I think in the minds of most participants, fairly rational market signals. Like they work the way that big, and I wouldn't necessarily call them boring, but let's call them well-priced and reasonably efficient markets are meant to work. So I, I think I'm glad we're starting with this, I should say, because I think it's important to sort of give the contours of what today's market looks like, but also potentially give a sense of scope and scale for what markets could grow into. But yeah, the EU ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme, and sorry, Americans, they use the term scheme, which sounds to us like it's shifty and made up, but it's not, is $763 billion dollars. Uh, in North America, the Western Climate Initiative and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, is about $55 billion. The UK, which now has its own baby carbon market because it's out of the EU, was about $26 billion. And then China has one too. China traded about 179 million tons in five months last year. But that is a market that for many reasons is all but inaccessible for others. And the EU ETS, for anybody who was looking at it, they would have seen quite a lot of price action last year for reasons that are really quite fundamental and in many ways quite like good in the sense. So we had prices earlier this year, like when we were first scoping out this discussion, approaching 100 euro per ton, which is quite a lot. That's the sort of numbers that like, if you think about it, should inspire quite a lot of change in behavior. But that price is actually in this case, responding to events, not used as a signal to then create change. And what it was, was gas prices went high. So the heavy emitters in Europe, which are in many cases large power generators, have a fuel switch to coal. And if you switch to coal, you are outputting more carbon for every gigawatt hour or megawatt hour generated. 
And so therefore, the price to comply needs to go up. Um, it's been bouncing around quite a bit since then. But that's really like what uh, a market looks like. The other thing I think is important to point out as we talk about the compliance markets, where, as you said, all the volume is, all the dollars are currently, is that they are cap and trade markets, right? right? And so what, what we see in the, we'll talk more about the voluntary markets, but most of the voluntary markets are some purchaser specifically making a bilateral purchase to buy some credits or offsets or removals or whatever. We'll talk more about this later. Um, to net their emissions to zero, ideally, or something like that. What's happening in the the UETS and all these compliance markets is a system wherein there's a total cap on emissions set, a big emitter gets a sort of allocation, and then can either meet that allocation via reducing their own emissions um, by, for example, switching to gas, as you said, or they can buy credits to make up for you know any excess that they've got. And so that's why there's like a tradable commodity that is a ton of, of CO2 equivalent in those markets, which we don't see yet in the, the voluntary market. So there's an actual liquid instrument, which leads to liquidity, obviously. This is, a, this is very important because the market is bounded. The market is taken as a given. The emissions level has been set, and this is the price in order to comply with setting that. So companies are not aspirational. Companies are not setting a goal. They have to do it. <laughs> that is what creates the price signal, and that's what creates the price action and the trading therein. So yes, it's very different than company setting goal, which could be open-ended, doesn't necessarily have a timeline, can include all kinds of things, versus the mechanisms within the EU ETS saying you have to do it, and now we are going to settle on the price that clears the market that makes that happen. Right. But it can spur change. I mean, it's certainly intended to spur change. And as you mentioned, this past six months has been an interesting kind of wild ride in what was a, a fairly sleepy market before that, where we had this big run up in prices. Uh, a few months ago, it has since pared back. I think you, you said it got to like close to 100 euros per ton. Mm -hmm. Now, last I saw it was in the 50 or 60 dollar per ton range. But then now we have this Ukraine situation, which is obviously causing more turmoil in gas markets. And so it, it's interesting to see how the carbon markets reflect dynamics in the broader energy market in Europe, because what's happening is companies are making decisions about what fuel to use and that impacts the price of their CO2 abatement. Precisely. And that's also not to say that there are not regulatory interventions within this market either. Um, this, this, this is a little bit, a, a, a little bit um, beyond my deep realm of comprehension. But basically, in, in earlier, earlier years, there was actually an oversupply. The market was in many ways more efficient than people were expecting at uh, you know, creating emissions abatement and, and changing the emissions trajectory in Europe. And so the prices were too low because there were too many credits. So there was an intervention to basically remove the, the, the number of credits that were there available in the market and or, or the, 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 the instruments which you needed to make, to make the market work. And those things do happen. So it's not that, that the market doesn't have some people stepping in here and there now and then to make things, to make things happen, but it's happening in a very, very regulatory way. All right, so this will be a transition to the talking about the voluntary markets, but I just want to drive home this point that I think is a, is a core distinction between the two that is not, as you said, in the sort of circles that I inhabit that are focused these days predominantly on action in the voluntary market is not fully appreciated, which is one credit, one ton in a, in a, in a cap-and-trade-driven compliance market is, yes, representative of one ton of emissions, but because there is a system-wide cap, assuming you don't believe in too much leakage, it's not like you have the same kind of issues with like, is this a real ton or not a real ton, right? There's a, there's a fixed number of tons in the entire trading scheme, as you said. And if you buy one of those tons, you can be pretty confident that somebody else can't. That's correct. Right? And so it makes it like the, the, all the issues around trust and transparency and some of the issues around quality and stuff like that, they're less of an issue in these big compliance markets. And there's, there's no, there, there is no fundamental questioning of it. You know, there's no fundamental inquiry that people need to make, like, is this real or not? It's real enough. It trades on screens and you can see it, you know, within the company corporate and financial strategies of like all of the biggest emitters in Europe. 
So yeah, so there's there's no kind of like theoretical discussion that goes on within this market in any meaningful way compared to the sorts of things that we think about happening, you know, in in your domain. Right. Now, there are other issues, obviously, in compliance markets. You know, you can set the overall cap too high and then you achieve basically nothing and prices are super low. I mean, Reggie, I'm interested to get your take on Reggie. So this is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, as you mentioned, in the Northeast of the U.S. I don't think it's been viewed as like the biggest driver of decarbonization in the power sector in the Northeast, right? You don't hear that much about Reggie. No, I, I think that that's a that's a correct assessment. Um, there are there are other there are other things. The economics of power generation, more localized policies, uh, just a general shift towards what gets funded in terms of what gets built. But you'd have to have extremely high prices to actually send that signal. And I I feel like they're not re- none of the none of the programs that we have in the United States are priced according to really send a massive market signal that wasn't already perhaps sent by something like a renewable portfolio standard. Yeah, I think the exception to that, though, it's not exactly the same thing as the low carbon fuel standard That's correct. in California, which has really high prices and has spurred a bunch of activity. Yes. Um, but to your point, right, like the thing that ends up mattering in terms of how big a difference uh, does a compliance carbon market make to to induce technological change or fuel switching is, is what the market price ends up being. And so that's why people were all interested in what was happening in the EU ETS, because if you get $100 per ton credits, like a lot of things become economic that were not before at 40 or $50, I'm sorry, euros per ton, especially. Um, so whether those prices are sustainable ends up mattering a lot. Precisely. The biggest question there is how durable is that price signal? So if this is the other thing um, about these being traded in liquid is that they will move. So how much do they, how much do they reflect economic fuel switching of the sorts that utilities and, and other large emitters might normally do versus how much do they incent behavior in the very, very long run. And of course, you know, my colleagues do run, you know, projections all the way out to like the middle of the, you know, 2030 and beyond uh, in terms of what those prices could be. And companies generally plan on that. But the near-term signal, the near-term signal, first of all, reflects things happening in the real economy, so to speak, of, of the big emitters of Europe. And companies have to respond to it very, very quickly. So it, I think in the long run, we do have it sending in a set of indicators as far as where company strategies might go. But in the near term, it is very much the result of what's happening rather than a driver of what's happening. Right. Okay. So let's transition to talking then about the voluntary markets. As, as you said, Far, far smaller volume in those markets, but because it, particularly in the sort of tech Silicon Valley world, there's a ton of attention being paid to this new generation of carbon offset creation and carbon removals and all that, which we'll talk about, uh, and all this Web3 stuff, like that all exists inside the voluntary carbon market. So let's set the stage there. What's the, the state of the voluntary carbon market? Well, there's, there's a, I would say, a great deal of interest and attention, a great deal of uncertainty, um, and in a productive way, a lot of sort of questions that, that are attracting investor interest. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can look at it. One is what's happening just in like what people are choosing to use for their offsets. Like, are they, are they using the kind of uh, things that are inexpensive, abundant, and I think increasingly people will continue, come to view them as sort of low-quality ways of doing an offset for a ton of carbon. Are people going to pursue high-cost, very much more technologically-driven uh, approaches to offsetting a ton of carbon that are I wouldn't. I can't really call them out of the money because the market, in a sense, doesn't really have clearing prices yet. But are very, very expensive ways to, you know, semi-permanently or permanently sequester a ton of carbon. Um, there's just there's just a very, to my mind, nascent sense of what is and could be in many different dimensions. Like what the best approach is going to be, what the best market structures are going to be how to account, how to ensure that we're not double counting things. 
And how, to my mind, I think that's most important, if I look back at the EU ETS, to incentivize particular behaviors over time. Because right now, these are entirely decisions that people are making. Almost entirely. That's why they're called voluntary, after all, right? Um, they wouldn't be called voluntary if they weren't people making decisions. But I guess I'm very, I'm very interested to see over time how these sorts of things evolve. What I can say right now is my colleagues have done this work is that, you know, we have a couple of scenarios for looking at what prices could look like for carbon offsets all the way through the middle of the century. And just to give you an indication of sort of like how wildly divergent these are, if we stay in a world that's really very much like today, a voluntary market where all kinds of things, avoided emissions credits, um, things like that, you end up with a very oversupplied market with what my colleagues would call largely worthless credits. And that not only drives down the price, it drives up the availability, and you are left with quality questions. And in 2050, you'd have about a $47 a ton price for carbon. Now, if you only look at removing carbon, which is another approach that, that I think is sort of much more rigorous in a sense, probably better to account for without quality questions, you can have prices that spike up to like more than $200 a ton, and but still settle in the range of like $120 a ton by the middle of the century. But as you can see, these are essentially completely different markets. Now, there's maybe some hybridization of those that comes in in between. But I think that this is actually like a really important sort of set of paths for us to consider that are really in no way kind of made certain at the moment. Yeah, I think, and let's let's like talk brass tacks for a second here. Yes. Let's talk about these prices, right? So as it stands today, there's a real bifurcation in the voluntary markets. There's some stuff in between, but let's just talk about the poles. The poles of the voluntary markets are on the low end, nature-based solutions, generally forestry, you know, reforestation, avoided deforestation, maybe some soil carbon stuff. And that stuff trades to the extent that it trades. People sell credits in the 5 to $25 a ton range, generally, right? Yep. On the other hand, you've got the high-quality, long-term, durable carbon removal stuff, direct air capture, mineralization, a uh, bunch of other stuff like that, where currently the purchases that are getting made by Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft and things like that are, you know, in the high hundreds of dollars a ton, sometimes $1,000 a ton or more. All of those companies, every one of them, to a name, are targeting getting to $100 a ton ultimately, or some of them say they can get a little, you know, 50 to $100 a ton. None of them say they can get to $10 a ton, right? So there's this like real fundamental distinction and there, but there's not a lot of clarity in the market around the difference between those two things. It's not just a commodity, right? Because you've got particularly permanence as a big distinguishing factor, but there's not really a way to like account for the ideal difference in price, for example, between a tree that doesn't get cut down and sequesters carbon for up to 100 years and, uh, you know, and CO2 that gets direct air captured and put underground and stored for 10,000 years. And there've been a bunch of attempts at this, this like 10 year accounting concept and a bunch of other things, but this is like where it is still totally the wild west. A hundred percent. Without, and without any market signal, it is completely incumbent upon the buyer and seller to both agree on a price, but also agree sort of almost metaphysically upon value. So it is extremely important what Stripe and Shopify are doing for this, for this purpose, because they have essentially said it is of value to us. But it's also very defensible if I think a bit, uh, not, I shouldn't say defensible, it's not completely defensible, but it is definitely justifiable for companies to be like, well, actually I can get, every, I can get all the tons I need at $5 a ton from this, from this nature-based solution. Within that, of course, too, there are other questions about, like, how well is that accounted for? Is it being double, triple, octuple counted? You know, like, how is it trading hands? What happens if, for reasons outside the control of the originator, that uh, credit of sequestered carbon in nature literally goes up in flames? Like, there are, there are many things within this that we are far from being able to kind of adequately price yet at the moment. And I don't say that cynically, but I think that's just the nature of the nature of the market as it is right now. 
Well, so, and this is exactly why, in part, there is a bunch of excitement around this in uh, tech VC land, right? Because on one hand, you have clearly growing demand. In fact, the, you know, everybody will tell you the market is currently undersupplied, especially for the durable uh, long-term quality, stuff right. on high-quality stuff. That's right. So there is growing demand for it. But everybody, I think, also recognizes all these issues that we're talking about now. And so it sort of seems at the outside like, oh, this is a solution that technology should solve. If we can create a tech stack that ensures that in every step along the way, there is no double counting, there is no leakage, there is permanence, there is verifiability, you know, and you build trust and transparency in the system via this tech stack, then maybe we create a market that can scale in the voluntary side up to what the compliance side is before long. And I know you've put some thought into like, what should this tech stack look like? So I'm interested in what you think it should look like, but also what is going to take for that to solve all these problems? So I, I, I've been sort of wrestling with my heuristic on this. And actually the, the kind of the, the one-line version is, is that when we look at all of the sort of capital T tech interests in, in, in carbon markets, the question we need to ask ourselves, is this um, tech solving carbon markets problems or are these carbon markets solving tech problems? You know, uh, are, are we seeing people attracted to fundamentally, I want to solve the issues of the carbon market and... Web3 and crypto uh, and refi are the re- regenerative finance are the ways to do it. Or am I a Web3 crypto person by training and by inclination? And carbon markets looks like a problem that need that, that I can solve using these. I think it's actually a, an important kind of heuristic for us to think about is that like what's what's being used for what purpose here? But there's a whole bunch of stuff. Let's say that we do use technology writ large to sort of solve these problems, as opposed to kind of market instrumentation, like the kind of stuff that, you know, makes the EU ETS work. Well, there are all kinds of different layers that you could sort of solve technologically. You know, one is just, you know, project development and sourcing. And maybe this looks just like the sort of project development that you and I would be familiar with and many others would be familiar with. In any kind of fundamentally land and asset-based origination. You know, this is the sort of thing that both people in renewable energy, but also in real estate would be familiar with. Then there's, you know, kind of protocol layers, making decisions. Then there's currency and transactability. Then there are marketplaces built on top of that, monitoring and verification layer in terms of making sure that people are doing what they say they intend to do, uh, whether, you know, and, and checking to see whether things fail due to, uh, you know, just events and force majeure or whether intentions are not really aligning with reality. And then ratings that would layer on top of all of that uh, in the same way that you would have ratings in financial markets. And, you know, in many ways, I don't think people think about typical financial markets in that degree of abstraction because we've kind of internalized all of those things. But I feel like those are all sort of relevant to explore. And we can get to it in a minute, but I I kind of see why it is from an investor perspective, in particular technology investor perspective, those are probably attractive. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. All right, so we've you you brought us into this territory and we can't avoid it. Let's let's talk <laughs> about the web three crypto refi stuff. This is I want to say this is, you know, I think the bulk of the new activity around, at least what I see, the bulk of what I see is a community that is being galvanized around the idea that we need we need a 
<laughs> I was going to say a ton, which is the wrong word. We need a gigaton. Actually, we need you know maybe 10 gigatons of carbon removals by mid-century. 10 gigatons is 10 billion tons. At $100 a ton, that's a trillion dollar market. So we need to start from essentially zero and create this huge market for carbon removal. And you know, the only way to do that right now, because there aren't compliance markets that support that, is voluntary purchases. And so we'll back into how do we get these technologies up to scale. I, I just want to say that's like, I think that's where most of the attention is is generally being paid. But there is this kind of insurgent community off on the side that thinks that the way to create, you know, trustworthy, transparent, fungible, uh, you know, easily tradable carbon markets is going to be using crypto. Via, yes. And with this um, whole amalgam of other terms that go along with it, let's talk about that for a second because there's a lot going on there. Give me the overview. Like, what's the what's the pitch for for crypto as a solution to this problem? And then what do we see happening there? So I think the the pitch is fundamentally that these are very highly decentralized markets because they don't have exchanges and clearinghouses. And fortunately, there is a highly decentralized set of technologies that could help solve for that. That is basically Web3, like a kind of user-controlled and user-programmable internet in a way, or in this case, kind of framework in which for things to be considered. And then within that, you would think about blockchain being valuable as a way to track what is being happened specifically with each credit along the way that's being generated, such that you don't have double, triple, octuple counting or whatever it is, because that information is indelibly recorded in a public ledger, which I think is actually you know particularly important. And then another potential layer within that is that there's some some like composability within the nature of that contract. So you can specify Essentially, if yeah, at the, at the simple, in my case, not particularly technical level, uh, sort of an if this, then that for when events happen. So that, so that if something is being retired, so to speak, it is permanently retired. That is indelibly recorded, and it therefore cannot be you know, magically popping up in some other registry and purchased for somebody else's sort of low-quality offsets program. I think that actually there is a lot of virtue in these attributes. And I think there's also a lot of potential within it. I'll give you another wrinkle on it. And I, and I, I say this, you know, coming to you from like a, a, a very high finance kind of world of really massive volumes of things. And actually, you know, by the standards of like global finance, blockchains don't really scale the way that say SWIFT, which everybody has now heard of thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which processes 42 million financial messages a day, or Visa, which does 206 billion transactions a day. And I can't even think of how many, how many uh, pull requests and hits global capital markets get every day. Blockchain is not at that scale, but that's okay because we're not talking about that kind of scale yet in terms of particular things in the offset world. So, you know, blockchain does not operate at the scale that Visa does. Um, but it would be okay in this case that it doesn't because I think composability uh, and transparency are probably like a, a more important attribute right now. Are we going to end up with a carbon market that has 206 billion annual transactions like Visa does? I, I don't think so. So we kind of like don't need to worry about that quite yet. The other thing that I think, the, the other part of the promise to using Web3 and all the associated tools for the purpose of carbon markets is, I guess this goes to composability sort of, but it, it makes it a little bit easier. It removes friction around clever financing and clever aggregations. So as you said, you can write into your smart, you can, you can, it, it makes it a little easier in theory to say, okay, I want to create a basket of credits and those ba that basket has to have a bunch of attributes. I only want the stuff. It's like anything you could do out of a database, right? I only want this, the permanent, you know, thousand year plus permanence. I want it to be, I want it to have all these other characteristics. It's really easy to create that basket. It's, you know, immutable. And then you can do clever financing stuff off of it and sign a long-term contract or a forward strip or something like that. So, you know, to me, I, I view crypto potentially as a way to unlock more capital for 
carbon markets, more capital for carbon removals in particular, that is more flexible and can do a bunch of creative things. If, one, that capital you know, is interested in playing in with crypto assets, and two, if the, the physical assets, meaning the thing, the tons that are getting removed only exist there. Because again, you know, your, your avoidance of double counting thing that you've mentioned a couple of times is key. And blockchain is nice to solve that if that credit only exists on the blockchain. If on right. the other hand, so that's where these, the role of these standards or the um, ratings agencies or things like that, like somebody has to do that verification probably off chain first think. Right. And I, but what I, what you're actually steering towards is the set of questions that I've been asking myself, which is how, like, let's work backwards. If this stuff works, we're at gigatons of scale. How is this fundamentally different than any securitized market? Because everything that you just laid out sounds an awful lot like the way, in a good way, securitized markets work in general. Um, you know that they, they they they're they're trusted. Um, they trade on ex- they they trade on exchanges. They're rated. They're verified. That they're all they're all within a place where we've kind of abstracted counterparty trust to a level that like people will freely trade and transact within them. Um, and ideally, to my mind, we need to use all of the tools available to get there. You know, to get to that point where. It's 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 like the EU ETS, and you're like, yeah, okay, well, because it's the EU ETS, I'm going to do it. I'm going. To, I'm not going to like sit back and agonize about whether or not these things work before I get involved in the market. I trust the market. A exists, and B uh, serves the purpose that I need, and C, I'm therefore comfortable to re- to, to really get in and go for it. So I think maybe I, I'm kind of like thinking way ahead towards like the big, boring, but global and working market side of these things and trying to figure out how all of these tools inflect into that at some point. Like, at what point could we actually get there? I guess I have this view that the purpose of scaling the voluntary markets today in an ideal world is to eventually spur compliance markets. Like, do, do we end up with a gigaton scale voluntary market you know, are, are companies in aggregate spending hundreds of billions of dollars voluntarily on carbon removals? Or at some point, does it get big enough and the politics get good enough that we say, okay, like let's now let's create a scheme that's, that makes sure all of this stuff is, is trustworthy. I mean, I guess the argument for a crypto driven future of this is that you never need to do anything centralized. You don't need to set a centralized cap. For example, if you've got a really well-organized crypto driven carbon market, but I guess I'm skeptical that it scales to that level without the cap getting set. Do you remember the last time that we spoke and we talked about the business model and the profit pool and direct air capture? And one of the things that you and I settled on as the sort of the sort of first principle of talking about it was the challenge is that it is definitionally a cost. Like it is definitionally a cost to remove carbon. Um, and therefore, like creating a market around that is a challenge, which is what you know, the EU ETS did away with that by regulating it. You know, rather than sort of let people kind of get involved in the metaphysics of deciding whether or not this is meant to be, they've just sort of done it. So I actually agree with you that I think it needs to steer, it needs to actually have that as part of its taxes. Its direction in the long term is like, we want to be a real global market because people have to do this over time. And that actually will will further drive all of this, whether it goes through the world of Web3 or not. But I think that that's, that, that that's actually like a really important attribute of it is sort of Where's the the driving towards that? Now, that's different than people saying, I can't get a market going without a a price on carbon. It's more saying, we want to create this, we want to create a market that makes us do this in the future. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit intriguing as an approach, but I think that there's something to it. I actually agree with you. The other thing that I want to see happen, not to keep harping on the cap and cap and trade, but what you ideally, I think, want, so these corporates, 
right, who are setting net zero targets, getting a lot of pressure to do so, and then getting further pressure to then actually like take actions that comport with those net zero targets. So that's great. And they need to then do a currently fairly complicated calculus where they need to figure out exactly what their current emissions levels are, where they come from, and then they need to make some decisions. How much can we reduce? And what we can't reduce, we should remove. Uh, and that will do that by right. purchasing carbon removals. And then there's the there's the credit. You know, very few companies, I think, currently are doing that kind of sophisticated calculus where there's like a trade-off between reduction and removal, and it needs to net out to zero, which a cap-and-trade system sort of forces upon them. Now, maybe it's a bit of a blunt instrument, right? But it it, it says, here's your total. Now, you figure out how to stay beneath that total. You could buy credits if you need to, but you could also just reduce your emissions. The voluntary market doesn't quite... Uh, enforce that decision-making. And that, I think, you can already see this starting to bubble up a little bit where there's like this like emergent uh, debate between people who are saying, we're paying too much attention to removals because we need to do all the reductions first. And then other people who are saying, we're spending virtually nothing on removals today. We need to start this market from zero. It shouldn't be an either <laughs> right. or. It should be, it should be this decision around what is the optimal way to get to net zero, um, which is really hard to do on a company-by-company company voluntary basis, I think. It's, in, it's incredibly hard. And, and, and I would say, to put it another, another way, it's within the history of markets that need to account for externalities and costs, it's kind of unfair. <laughs> like, it's a, really, it's a really big thing to force upon companies to saying, like, there's this important thing. We think it's societally a cost. We have no idea what it is. Figure it out for yourself. But we're not going to help you. Now, like, like I have a sort of like, like interim thing, which is like imagine that, you know, the world's biggest institutional money managers say, listen, we think that you need to be doing this and we're going to give you the kind of like air cover to do really high quality offsetting at 50 or $60 a ton. Like that's sort of what we expect you to be doing as part of the, the kind of fiduciary compact that we have with not only uh, our clients and customers, but sort of with society. Like that's a kind of like a half measure set on the, de- on the investor demand side that would then force companies in the same way that like a compliance market does to kind of fill in what they need to do to make that happen. You know, without the SEC mandating that, it's just companies saying, I've made a commitment across my portfolio. I understand that it will have some costs occasioned in the process of doing that. And therefore, I'm going to, you know, I, I've decided that this is the price and y'all go out and, you know, multiply, go forth and do what you need to do in order to make that happen. Right. Right. Yeah. What I'm imagining in my head is like every company should have a stacked area chart, not to get into Microsoft Excel territory, though I know you'll (laughs) appreciate this. Um, Every company should have a stacked area chart that the the total, the y-axis is that company's total net emissions. And the, the stacks are, you know, actual emissions and then removals, removals being negative on there. And it should net out to zero, ideally starting today, because there's no reason you can't, I mean, with the exception yes. of sort of availability of high quality credits, right? But you, with that that aside, you could net out to zero anytime. And then yes. what should change over time is two things. One, the total amount you need to net should go should down. Should go down. Right. And so, and then the share of your, uh, of your the delta between year year to year should change between how much you're getting out of reductions and how much you're getting out of removals. But every company should have that plot from today out to whenever their net zero target is uh, or beyond, and be able to show like here's our plan. We think we can get from the current you know five megatons that we emit to two megatons, and here's how we're going to do it. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to remove five megatons, and by the end, we're going to remove two megatons. Seems That's like right. fairly straightforward, albeit super complicated underneath the hood. And it's and it's an in, it's an interplay of price signals and behavior that makes that happen. Like there would be it would be very weird if a company was like, actually, I have a kind of 
um, you know, I have a like a sort of like a contango forward cost curve for carbon, and I'm going to be emitting more. <laughs> like, that would be really weird. The whole idea is that like uh, ideally you you kind of you are in the position where like okay, costs are going up, and therefore I'm going to do less of this thing that costs me money. And so actually, ideally, I change my behaviors to the point where I need fewer offsets. I need less kind of carbon market action in order to, to, to satisfy the net zero that I'm, that I'm aiming for. Right. All right. So I guess to wrap up here, I know, you know, Bloomberg has come up with a bunch of scenarios for future sort of progression of the, of the market. For you personally, if you're sort of taking a guess as to the next five to ten years, how do you think this plays out? I think that I, I think that I'll start with I understand like thinking about it from an investor perspective. In, you're the investor, not me, but in, insofar as I can abstract this, it's like, why are people interested in this? You know, if in terms of backing companies that go after this, well, it's because these markets have a high degree of uncertainty today and a high degree of significance in the future. But more to the point, and this is something I haven't seen talked about yet a lot, is that there are dynamics in play. There are definitely probably power law economics involved in these kind of particularly software-driven platforms. But also, are there software kind of margins for many of these layers, which is also why people are interested in doing them, you know, protocols and and things like that. And then, are there winner-take-all network effects? That, I think, is extremely important. Is there a case in which we have dozens of different ways to do accounting? And you and I talked about this the last time we spoke, too. Like, there's a couple of ways to do globally recognized financial accounting. You know, like, we will not be in a successful place if we have, if we have, on a good way, 500 different ways to do a high-quality offset and 50 different ways to measure and account for it. That will not be a success. Success would be like thousands of ways to do an offset and two to five maybe ways to actually measure, verify, and account for it. And then finally, what's the, like, what's the level up to interface with really big markets? Markets that institutional investors want to be a part of just as markets in general. And so that's what I'm very curious about. Is that like, when do these things get to the point where they're at the like Pareto optimal of like composability and transparency, uh, embracing lots of different effects, but being trustworthy enough that a big exchange is willing to fold it in. And then what? I mean, like I, I, I work, I'm sitting in an office today, sort of at the heart of like how global financial markets work, and none of these things run on blockchain. And there are companies that do them in a way that's fairly esoteric, but that's... Uh, that's not necessarily something that will have to persist through that. I would be disappointed if some of the really cool technological things here don't end up reaching that scale. But they may inevitably end up needing to interface with, you know, the kind of the kind of boring but highly interoperable and very durable stuff that is like, you know, the COBOL backend of like bank programming or the way that great big accounting firms do their work. And then finally, I guess my question is like, I want to know what instruments get built on top of this that come from traditional markets. Should we get futures and forwards, options, derivatives? Will there be indexes built out of these things? Uh, are there going to be on exchanges? And if they're on exchanges, will we get like ETFs? Will we have exchange-traded funds that incorporate all of these things? And then finally, what institutional roles that do not bear in mind, really originate from Silicon Valley might go along with these things. If these markets are a really big scale and are essentially securitizations, do we have custodians, fiduciaries, overseers? Are there going to be institutional asset managers that get involved? Portfolio managers, are there going to be market makers? You know, are you going to have people that do alternatives, special situations groups, a lot of ARBs, will there be, you know, the equivalent of payment for order flow in these markets that kind of arbitrages big company capability and small company interest? So uh, that's me probably looking way beyond most of the kind of discussions that are happening today. But those are my curiosities, I guess, for the future. All very good questions. I will say on my side, the thing that I, sp- I think the most about is 
having lived through a, a cycle, not quite like this, but living lived through a cycle of excitement around carbon markets that then didn't really go anywhere, at least in the U.S., and, and having some fear that some of the same things that took down the first wave, namely lack of trust and transparency and the fact that it was all voluntary when the market overall, the macro market went down, worrying about the same things this time around. One of the things that I feel like is an absolute necessity and I don't exactly know how it's going to get solved in the near term, maybe this is through the ratings providers or something like that, is just clearer understanding in simple terms for everybody of the differences in quality and the differences in value of one you know, ton of CO2 equivalent and another ton of CO2 equivalent. I mentioned those two poles, but there's a lot in between those poles, right? Take biochar, right? Which is which is longer durability than most of the nature-based stuff, not as much as the permanent stuff. Like there's, and there's going to be more, right? There's this Cambrian explosion of carbon removal companies coming to market right now. And so it's only going to get more complicated. We really need simplified heuristic ways to talk about this stuff and to understand the value of these things. Otherwise, I just fear the market is not going to be trusted by anybody outside of the like vanguard who's already involved in it. So you, you, it'll it'll be you want it to get to Vanguard, the asset manager, not just the yeah, Vanguard, Vanguard the, yeah. the, not just the Vanguard <laughs> of, of early adopters. But that's right. It it will it will rattle around in a world of esoterica. Otherwise, and that would be a shame in every possible way if that happens. If that's yeah. the result, but I think I think people don't. I think people want to steer beyond that. But it's going to involve some. It's going to involve some grown-up conversations along the way. Let's let's say that, and some coordination, which we're all yes. collectively pretty bad at. Um, Nat, thank you so much. Always great to chat with you. It was, this is a nice easing back into podcast land for me. So, well, welcome back. Thank you so much, uh, and we'll have you on again to talk about who knows what. But no, no question. Thanks, Shale. It's a pleasure. Nat Bullard is the chief content officer at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find the show on Twitter at at CatalystPod. You can find me, Postscript, and Canary there too. Please tag us to send feedback on this episode or suggest future topics. And if you like the show, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Still early days for Catalyst, so we really do appreciate it. Or just share the episode with a friend. It helps other people learn about the show. You can find links for this episode's topic and guest in the show notes on canarymedia.com. Postscript Media is supported by my buddies at Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. Theme song and mixing by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.